Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Thank you so much for our time together today. It's been quite a week, right? <laughs> but it's Aloha Friday now. And let me tell you, the art sector in our state's been rolling up its sleeves. You'll see today that the creative sector is moving and art itself is changing too. Like everything else, it's being put to work. Terry Skillman knows all about that. She's been an arts administrator and producer here for over a decade. She's now CEO of the Hawaii Arts Alliance. Since the pandemic began, a creative resurgence hui has been strategizing how the arts can strengthen Hawaii's recovery. As part of that hui, Skillman says, there are concrete ways to move forward this year. We downsized in the summer when COVID hit. We Sorry, downsized and we cut our space in half at the Y. And then they got funding for the Minority Women's Center, which is awesome. But that also meant they needed the space that we're in. <laughs> so that pushed us to have to find a place. And uh, Downtown Art Center with Sandy Pole and uh, you know all of the artists who've moved into that space, that was the best option which is great. I feel like it's going to be more dynamic. There's so much that needs to go okay. on down there. So, yeah. So catch me up on what you see. We're still in the midst of being hit really hard. There was a really good article that was in the New York Times about how the arts are in crisis. And I think people don't realize the extent to which the arts are in crisis. Because in Hawaii, so much of the art sector or the creative sector, if you will, is masked by tourism. It's not only like the hotel workers and the restaurant workers, but everybody who had a gig in a hotel or in a restaurant, you know, and all of the artists who thrived on selling paintings or performances. It's, it's huge the extent to which the creative sector has been devastated. Thankfully, Senator Taniguchi organized that informational meeting for us in December. And our request with that meeting was we want a creative resurgence caucus. So I know that Representative Gates and Taniguchi were looking at going forward and who to ask to create the caucus. So I'm waiting to hear. We're going to be doing the Americans for the Arts survey coming up this year and hoping that a lot of the arts organizations will help us with gathering data for that survey to show better what's happening to Hawaii. Are you expecting federal funds then at some point? Yeah, I mean, we are expecting it. It's just a question of how they're going to frame it. I know that when you start looking at all of the caveats that come with money that's being offered, it just makes it really, really hard for an organization to be able to access it. And then think about the individuals. like The arts are in different baskets. I mean, there are the venues, right. the yeah. theaters, the museums. There are the organizations. And then there are the individuals. Right. What we've realized in this whole process is generally the public is more focused on the institutional level because that's where they engage. They don't understand that the institutions employ gig workers or the contract workers by theme programming. For example, if you're going to HOMA and it is a Persian event, they're only going to hire people who know Persian dance, Persian food, Persian culture. Those people are the ones who are hit so hard. They don't have, you know, the benefits that a full-time employee gets. How large do you think that sector is in Hawaii? I think it's pretty large. We don't have an accurate number on it. And that's part of why we want to do the AFTA study this coming year. That's also one reason why we're really pushing the Creative Artists Network. Our next focus with the Creative Artists Network is to start trying to see if we can't get group health insurance, you know, um, get some kind of a, a, a contract or agreement for copyright lawyers to help us out at a reasonable rate for artists. Oh, wow. But, You're forming something there. I don't know what it's called, but I, I, I hope so. We've looked at a couple of existing websites. The, the most incredible one that um, really floors me with what they provide is the freelancers union in New York and New Jersey. We want to do this in Hawaii because people 
people here need it, you know. The Creative Artist Network is only for people who are based in Hawaii. I mean, you need to be paying taxes here. You need to be registered to vote. And you should have some kind of state ID. It's not for a snowbird who's here for, you know, a few months out of the year and goes back. So it's the investing in community that's really, really important. Terry Skillman, CEO of the Hawaii Arts Alliance, mentioned that Senator Brian Taniguchi and Representative Cedric Gates are working to start a Creative Resurgence Caucus at the state legislature. The Creative Artists Network is an open listing of Hawaii creatives. You can get it at the Hawaii Arts Alliance website, or we'll post a link. Art for art's sake? Catherine Don says we're past that. She's executive director of Hawaii Contemporary, the successor to the Honolulu Biennial Foundation. Now, since it started, the Biennial's been doing its job connecting us with the international art world. In 2017, Yayoi Kusama had people clogging online ticket sales and standing in lines for hours in Washington, D.C., when we had her showing her polka dots here at Foster Garden. Now, Hawaii Contemporary is planning an art summit to connect Hawaii people from all walks of life with new ways of seeing things. We are excited now that people are used to engaging with the arts virtually, we certainly will be integrating that aspect of our audience engagement online during the actual triennial in 2022. For us, you know, the upside of Everything that we've been doing during the pandemic has not been just as a temporary placeholder, but something that we'll continue to build on in the future. Earlier last year, when we decided to change our name and we had a very conscious effort to rebrand our organization, we thought very deeply about what our organization meant in the community. That is where we really prioritize a lot of our efforts, our conversations on developing these partnerships for the long term and not just thinking about our triennial as a singular event and that we're the producer of just this one event, but that we are part of a constellation of community partners that are able to realize an event of this scale in Hawaii. And it's due to those collaborative efforts that we're able to make something of this large scale possible. Iolani Palace, Honolulu Museum of Art, Bishop Museum, Hawaii State Art Museum, and Shangri-La Museum, Islamic Art and Design. They will also be our presenting partners for the actual triennial one year out. You know, I got to see 20 years of Ai Weiwei's work at the Brooklyn Museum about six years ago, maybe. I mean, room-filling pieces, right? And, and they were about migration, history, his arrest and detention. And the title of this of the show was According to what? <laughs> I mean, irreverence. His irreverence is profound. Ai Weiwei is one of our keynote presenters. So in conversation with Melissa Chu, they will be discussing his role as an artist, his recent experiences developing a new film called Cockroach, and a lot of his other activities as an artist, as an activist. Melissa and Ai Weiwei have been friends for a very long time. I think that it will be a very lively conversation that addresses some of the work that they've done together over the years. Well, you can see interviews with Ai Weiwei on the web, but the fact that Melissa Chu has a deep working relationship with him will be so important to this conversation. Yeah, and I think he's probably a good example for describing what we are trying to address with all the other summit speakers, which is that, you know, contemporary art and the way that Hawaii contemporary is thinking about art, it's not art for art's sake. Art is a language for communicating change. So whether we're talking about climate change or social justice or other relevant issues, these artists are thinking about it too. Ai Weiwei is a great example, but there are so many other artists that we have invited to the summit who champion that same kind of activism. You know, art is not a mutually exclusive thing from all the other contemporary issues that we're addressing. 
during the pandemic, it hasn't stopped creativity from flourishing. The downtown art center is open. The arts and letters building is now open and the new bookstore by More Art and Flea. And I think for us, when we're thinking about an event that's already a year out, there are conversations that artists are having that should be heard. And you can do that at the Art Summit. Catherine Don is executive director of Hawaii Contemporary, and their art summit runs February 10th to 13th with talks, performances, there'll be film screenings, workshops, open to all. Registration is free at the Hawaii Contemporary website. We'll post some links with this story. Biennials of the past have featured local sound artists. I mean, they've been people on experimental instruments. There was even a short-term radio station called Central Pacific Time. Now, in that spirit of experimentation, let's check out the work of musician, sound artist, Kit Ebersbach. It's from his December 2020 release, Itchy Lee Presents the Dalai Lawnmower. When I was doing it all my way before, I had no problems. All your way? You women never really lie. Well, why would I lie? It's something inside your head. It's something inside your head. It's something inside your head. What? Your head. What? Inside your head. Your head. to me. What's funny about? Oh, come on now. I'm trying to make you understand. I didn't give it to anybody. Come on now. Do you notice anything wrong with it? I didn't give it to anybody. I'm trying to make you understand. The syncopated sound editing, I tell you here. Kit Eversbach from his Bandcamp release, Itchy Lee presents the Dalai Lawnmower. What do you make of this? I mean, it's highly tongue-in-cheek, but the narratives are not random. I mean, they just get you picturing things in your mind. The cover art is a takeoff on Edward Hopper's landscape with that woman lying on a field called Christina's World. Maybe you remember it. This is the title track from The Empty Road, another collection of audio vignettes and landscapes issued last December on Bandcamp. Kit Eversbach's an interesting guy. He's a pianist, composer, and arranger, fascinating behind-the-scenes backbone of the music scene here, too. He's recorded some of Hawaii's most important musicians in his recording studio. I'd love to interview Kit sometime. <laughs> Do you like that? Well, let us know. Maybe drop us a note to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And let us know, in fact, if you know another musician under the radar here in Hawaii. I've seen Kit Eppersbach performing over the pandemic. That's usually him playing piano with the stunning Star Kalahiki.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Anchor Systems Hawaii. Since 1997, providing foundation construction and repair services for homes, including retaining walls, slab leveling, and pool shoring. More at AnchorSystemsHawaii.com. HPR's Atherton Concerts are back with a season of virtual performances. Join us Saturday, January 23rd when we welcome Kailua Moon with their signature blend of traditional Hawaiian, pop, and Americana. Guitarist Danny Carvalho and singer Nani Edgar will share classic songs and new ones as well. It's an online show, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with the museum open to guests during evening hours Thursday through Sunday. Current exhibitions and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. See you there. A trained interviewer, Jane Marshall Goodsill, says her book, Voices of Hawaii, opened her eyes. She found herself learning so much about her father and the Hawaii of his time through conversations with his contemporaries and associates. Marshall Max Goodsill moved to Hawaii from New York in 1941. And Goodsill focuses on the earlier days when world war, statehood, and crises in the sugar and pineapple industries caused incredible change here. Widely known and respected in the Honolulu community, Jane Goodsill's father was an influential expert in corporate securities and in tax and utilities law. In the book, he talks about some of the first days that he was here since he was the only young associate in the firm, Anderson, Wren and Jenks, that was a bachelor, he would get weekend duty. So he would go out with Mr. Heaton Rand to his place in Lanikai, and they would work on very complex sugar acquisition, land acquisition and sugar corporate law deals. While they're looking out over all the plains of the windward side, he said it was just magnificently beautiful with the ocean right there and the canoes and the surfboards and the sails. He said he'd come to paradise. But I, I think, you know, Noe, I think it was uh, not only how beautiful it was here, but the challenge of what was happening in the law field at that time. His practice was already well established by 1959, statehood. I think, yes, it probably was. Could you describe his social milieu, the people that he rubbed shoulders with? Well, the firm that he worked with was one of the big five law firms, and one of the things I talk about in the book, it was a fairly uh, segregated environment so that anybody who worked in those law firms was Caucasian. Their clients were the big five who had a lot of legal work that needed to be done. Those were the days when there was a lot of cocktailing going on and a lot of cocktail parties that they went to. That was kind of the way that the elite would meet and they would do business that way. And in the book, I, I, I hear that perspective not only from the Holly population, but the Chinese, the Koreans, the Japanese, all the ethnicities that were doing their thing were all sort of living in the same kind of standard. Did they socialize together? Not in the beginning. That was something that I think slowly changed over time. Now, you're not asking me to be an expert on this because I'm not. All I can do... No, I'm looking at your book and I'm seeing... Another thing that's neat about your book is you've organized it by subject matter. And one of the sections is the melting pot. I mean, you know, our ideas about diversity have changed so much since the 50s, 60s. Uh, talk about what the melting pot was in those days. Well, what I'm going to talk about is... The fact that I interviewed people of all ages and all ethnicities, though I did focus as much as I could on our father's generations, and they spoke so evenly and so openly without rancor. Well, some, some spoke with some rancor about how difficult it had been for them to break in to the Holly uh, uh, cabal, right? But the stories they told were so authentic and so um, heartfelt that you get a different kind of sense of how the melting pot, as we call it, worked. And many people chose to stay in their own little niches, but it took a, a few people's concerted efforts in stepping up and making it happen. Who would those people be, do you think? One of the couples that made that happen was Jerry and Philip Ching. Uh, Philip Ching was working for Bank of Hawaii, and some of his friends and some Holly people came to him one day and said, Philip, you have to join the Pacific Club. Asians had tried to put in a membership at the Civic Club a few years earlier and been denied. And so, so Philip says, 
what? Why do I have to do it? And they said, because somebody has to. You'd be a good candidate. We want you to do it. And he went, but all my Chinese friends are going to think I don't want to be parquet and that I don't want to hang out with my own people and I'd rather be with the Hollies. And I don't know. But they said, no, you have to do it. So he did it. <laughs> so he and Jerry were among the first Asian members of the Pacific Club. That was a big change. And there were lots of changes through those years. Compiled, compiled here um, are memories from 75 island people some of them really highly influential in our town. Jane Marshall Goodsill will do a talk and book signing tomorrow at 11 in Native Books at Arts and Letters on Nu'uanu. There's easy parking there on Baratania Street right in the lot. And next Saturday, Goodsill will be at Namea Hawaii in Ward Center uh, from 11 to noon. Or you can check Native Books online. The book is called Voices of Hawaii. Goodsill mentioned integrating the Pacific Club. Have you ever noticed the Pacific Club's art collection? Stunning collection of Hawaii artists, and many of the club's patrons were involved with the big five companies that Goodsill mentioned, the big banks, businesses, and families that controlled Hawaii. Those people and families were some of Hawaii's seminal art supporters. If you talk to arts nonprofits today, they say funders and board members have changed a lot over the years. And during the pandemic, key local funders have pivoted to health and economic aid. Bank of Hawaii is continuing Family Sundays online at the Honolulu Museum. And First Hawaiian Bank just mounted a new show at their downtown office. There are stalwart supporters of the arts here. The thing is, others are joining in. Jan Harada is executive director of the H.T. Hayashi Foundation, which distributed close to $670,000 last year. They included $50,000 and a multi-year commitment to preserve original hula resources. Trisha Kehalani Watson is president of the Kalihi Palama Culture and Arts Society. They're partnering with the State Archives to expand on the invaluable hula primer that they published in 1984. I'll just let the two of them tell you about this project, starting with Trisha Kehalani. It really was the incredible foresight of our founder, Kahu Wendell Silva, who started to do this ethnographic work literally decades ago, right? So a lot of people do interviews now. Decades ago, he recognized the importance of putting together these sort of primary resources about hula. And he published the books, but what we didn't realize until we started to go through our own archives was these were all typed up. We had the original recordings that he transferred to CD. I mean, we had just so much more. Catalog and too. He took impeccable records. He was actually mm. also instrumental in creating the State Foundation for Culture and the Arts. So he was he's just brilliant. One of the sort of weird silver linings of COVID, if there can be such a silver lining, was when we had to cancel the competitions, at least the live events, we were able to focus on these other projects that are so valuable and critical. Right. And in your case, unique. And for H.T. Hayashi, Jen, major funding entities in this state moved away from arts funding during the pandemic. Hayashi is committing $50,000 this year and for five years. Mm -hmm. I really was excited to partner with the Kalihi Palama Culture and Arts Society on this. Um, we really just feel like, like Trisha says, they don't, there's nobody else that has access to some of what they have access to. Preserving and then sharing to make sure that it doesn't get lost for future generations is huge. And so we're super happy to support that effort. I mean, you know, some people could ask what you're doing supporting art and culture at a time like this. Yeah, so we do believe, obviously, crisis and emergency services are needed, food, housing, homelessness, but we also feel that art and culture are a really big part of what helps communities to heal, what helps kids for the future right now develop, you know, soft skills like compassion and empathy, creativity, risk-taking, all things that we feel are going to be important in the future, whatever the future looks like. That's kind of why we haven't shied away from funding. 
some funders have probably pivoted to more emergency and crisis, but we feel like it's equally important because healing is a really big part. And I don't think you can do that without art and culture. And we do believe that also in the future, thriving and healthy communities have those components. And if we don't focus on them now and we wait until we get past recovery, it's going to be too late. Some things may not exist if we wait that long. The impact to arts and culture that we've seen just in the last year due to COVID is, is catastrophic. So the fact that there are organizations that again have foresight, like the H.T. Hayashi Foundation, to invest not only sort of in the short term, but the long term, I absolutely believe is the kind of entities that are going to help us. Everybody's talking about rebuild better, but you need these blocks to rebuild better. And I think they're very invested in those building blocks. And Jan is absolutely right. There's an after this. People are talking about how much culture equals social fabric and how important that is in our recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think for the foundation, we do believe that's what grounds us, right? That's what helps us come back together is an understanding and a, an access to culture and art. I mean, before we even funded this, we looked at things like what happens to kids that start to learn more about their own culture and their history and the joy and the pride that comes with that. Those are the kinds of emotions that shouldn't be discounted in terms of how you move through crisis and how you move through emergency situations. You know, when we can ground in who we are and our stories and understand, I think it's a little bit easier to sort of navigate complex challenges, to handle conflict and disagreement, to decide how we're going to convene, because it's not about convening. We don't believe it's about everyone's going to always agree, but it's about how we navigate when we don't agree and how we treat each other when things aren't going well and how we build, uh, like Trisha was saying earlier, building blocks for a future, what that looks like. And even for adults who start to revisit and reimagine what their history and their stories are like, I mean, it's amazing what happens to people when they have a really grounded understanding of who they are and where they came from in terms of their ability to move forward in life. Jan Harada, Executive Director of H.T. Hayashi Foundation, a supporter of the Kumu Archive Project, and Trisha Kehilani Watson, President, Kalihipalama Culture and Arts Society. We just heard from them. The Art Society's partnering with the State Archives to digitize over 100 years of first-person hula knowledge and history. They're working to make it accessible worldwide through the web. And that work will continue despite the pandemic. As the head of Hawaii Contemporary said earlier, there's a lot of creative activity going on right now. Dana Tokioka is president and executive director of Island Insurance Foundation, and they've had a hand in some of that. The foundation's built on investments by founder Masayuki Tokioka, who started Island Insurance in 1940. Now, this foundation gave away close to $900,000 last year, 2020, including seed funding for the new downtown arts center. Under Dana's leadership, Island also bought the house for Lee Cataluna's play at Kumukahua last December. They purchased the entire run, making the digital projection free for all viewers. So I talked to Dana about why. COVID changes the way you think, right? So as excited and happy as we are to donate to organizations such as the Hawaii Food Bank, et cetera, um, we also recognize that you know education took a hit this year with the learning. Um, we also recognize that the arts and culture has taken a hit this year. So I would say that in a normal year, we, we are focused a lot on education because um, our experience as a company has been founded in the belief that, you know, you come to, you can come to America, right? In the old days, as my dad likes to say, you know, immigrants came, they took advantage of the education and they bettered themselves and their families. This year, I would say that it was much more thoughtful and evenly spreading out as much as we could to recognize that all nonprofits are suffering right now. You know, how, do you, how can you tell if you're giving to the right place, especially in the culture area, I guess? That's what people have a problem with. They can't measure the success of their investment or what? Nonprofits are hard, right? It's, it's, you know, it's easy for a board to look at the, the profit line on the bottom, but, you know, the profit for a nonprofit is a smile in some cases, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there's a lot of things that go into to figuring out whether or not, you know, food, how many bags of food is this going to get to the community? How many kids will be impacted by having this funding come through to them? So you can ask for those numbers. But there's also the community aspect, whereas you hear about it, 
you know, obviously we don't want to put organizations in the job of keeping track for us. So a lot of it is just what we hear and also what they can tell us and how it impacts others. And so what kind of response did you get to the Kumukahua play that you sponsored uh, in December? Um, I was very excited. I think they can tell you that Kumukahua Theater, at, like Island Insurance Foundation, is very interested in telling the stories of Hawaii and Hawaii's people. And I think it was the experiences of people who had once lived here or Kama'aina who had lived down on the mainland, you know, saying, hey, that was so much fun. It was so great to be able to see that. I completely resonated with Catalina's play. And wow, you know, it, it brings back things from, you know, Angel Flight Pants, the, you know, the whole, that again, that common experience that just everyone from around the world was able to share with us, you know, versus versus just in, in our community. With the fact that we went to um, other states and even other countries is amazing. Dana Tokioka is president and executive, executive director of Island Insurance Foundation. That was quite a run there at Kumukahua. They are longstanding supporters of education and the arts in Hawaii. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat on Hawaii Island, helping to normalize conditions such as diabetes and high blood pressure with nutrition and exercise, and without pharmaceutical drugs. More by calling 933-4400. Are we alone out here in the universe? Harvard astrophysicist Avi Loeb wants to convince you that the answer is no and that the strange interstellar passerby Oumuamua back in 2017 was evidence. I don't regard this as a speculation that we are not alone. In fact, I don't think that we are the smartest kid on the block. Not convinced? You'll have to listen on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. On Kauai, local nonprofits, county commitment, and COVID funding have sparked some changes in Lihue. Last October, 45 mural artists set to work on key walls in what was the world debut of Nirmana Fest, a Garden Island mural painting festival. At the time, there was construction going on, but there were no people around because of COVID. Today, colorful murals brighten five different walls along Evalu and Rice Streets. I heard about the murals through the Rice Street Business Association and the Kauai Resilience Project, and people kept referring me to Seth Womble, an international mural artist. Um, he's been living on Kauai. So I asked Seth, what brought him here? To give you a nutshell, is really tough. I've lived all over the place. Uh, prior to moving here to Kauai 10 years ago, I was 10 years overseas and have been blessed to visit lots of wonderful places as well as work with different communities for mural projects. And I'm very proud to call Kauai my home at this point. What's the genesis of your mural art? Are you a sketcher who went big? Are you a commercial artist? There's kind of a fun story to that. Before finishing high school, I was already traveling through uh, Central America, some a little bit with my father for surfing trips. And by the age of 16, I went ahead and booked myself a trip over there on my own during one summer with $300 in my pocket. I had kind of expected to make it through maybe a week or two and ended up finding myself painting signs and a large Bob Marley portrait on the side of someone's building and essentially just trading, bartering my time for room and board. It really kind of opened a whole new realm to me, uh, experiencing not only the world, but being able to be a creative problem solver. And when I say that, that's kind of the crux of what I see myself as rather than just a mural painter. I am a teacher, a musician, a scuba instructor, a lifelong ocean advocate, but the crux of my artistry is what I believe to be creative problem solving. Now that first Bob Marley portrait that I did in Costa Rica was um, created with colored powdered pigments mixed with some sort of a glue substance. So it was in a really remote area. I basically cut the corner off of a, a squishy foam bed mattress <laughs> and that glue, I created this portrait. And that was really what let me know that um, it was about being resourceful and what was there around me rather than having all the ideal perfect scenario and materials. It was, uh, what can I do with what I've got? So murals as my wheelhouse, I'm using that now as a teaching point. And I think that this past year really set that in motion more than any other time in my life. 
I know a little bit about what you're talking about because I've seen the results of near manifest. I was lucky to have uh, some folks from the Rice Street Business Association and a few other wonderful people in our community that basically sat with me in the first week of January of 2020 and said, yes, this is a great idea. We're going to help you figure this out. And that's where Near Manifest was born. By creating the event that's a flagship, I was able to pool together our resident artists, various experience levels, various generations and cultures to put in proposals. How did you find them? I put out a public call to artists through radio, newspaper, social media, things like that. And in February, we had 46 artists show up and I put on a presentation saying that we're going to do this mural event. It's going to be a little bit different. There are definitely mural events all over the world, which are wonderful. But the one thing that was really special about this one is that it was for resident artists only. It did not matter what your experience level was and that it was going to be collaborative, really lumping the collaboration in there. And then also there were artists that uh, painted in this event last year that had never painted a mural before. And there were other artists that were extremely um, experienced, had worked in, um, for example, movie industry, you know, and, and things like that with backdrops. They were all elevating each other. It was just this really unique environment for creativity. I was able to go out and seek permission from these businesses and say, we're going to create these murals for you for free. You can definitely be a sponsor or help contribute. The other thing was, is that we really want to pay these artists. So uh, artists often have a hard time sticking up for themselves. And we definitely get approached a lot of times with the, the golden exposure, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> exactly. Oh, this will be fun. Great yeah. exposure. Yeah. Exposure doesn't pay the bills, but... <laughs> It does help. That is meaningful. I, I digress a little bit. I don't mean to. It's all very exciting and I'm, it's still sinking in. Like I said, there were artists that had never painted a mural before, but their sketches were meaningful. They weren't the best sketch you've ever seen in your life, but the concepts behind them, the love that was in them and the heart that they wanted to give to their community was in them. So what were the evaluators actually looking for in these murals? Well, we had a really wonderful group of jurors, women like Carol Yatsuda, Carol Bennett, and a few others, well-known artists mm -hmm. that are to be here. So, and they were just sure. looking for that heart. And it was looking for that shared story that, that our community here in Kauai could feel and relate to, and even potentially, you know, take ownership and pride in. Did these artists know each other? Many of them did not. And at that point, we did already have the pandemic on hand. So by the time we got into May, we had the groups selected. We notified the artists and then basically did set them loose. We were all still trying to figure out Zoom and how to share media digitally. So they were sending each other things or, or meeting and passing stuff off. And once they got up and dialed in, we showed those to the wall owners or whoever it was that was in charge of the building that was going to get painted for the final approval and then um, set things up and went ahead and got our sponsors and collaborators and funding and it just fell into place all at the right perfect time it's really still mind-blowing for me the way that it worked out where all of our community events were just dropping off the map daily block parties and parades and music events and they all just dropped off now where nirmana was concerned i had a lot of people really concerned that this wasn't going to happen. And really when it came down to it, it's like, there are three artists on a wall be working on scaffolding or lifts, and they're all going to be in masks and a lot of times gloves, and we don't need to draw a crowd. And these murals are going to be up for people to enjoy throughout the year. And it just had to happen. And we had wonderful support from the county, from the mayor's office. You know, what was motivating the sponsors to get into this? Well, as the year went on, it really became that this was clearly kind of one of the only things that was going to happen for the community here. And it became a really big deal. And um, it was it was deeply meaningful for the, for the artists that were involved, let alone the businesses that were losing all of their, their traffic and things like that throughout the year. To have some kind of something that was beautiful and exciting and different and new for the community. And it also activated these spaces, activated these artists. It just gave some heart and hope to a whole lot of people. What kind of responses have you gotten? People were watching it happen, I guess, and then now see it. I have uh, several voicemails that I will probably never take off of my phone. And I'm, I'm, I really I get choked up talking about it because it was just, it was really overwhelming in the collaborative sense and just the people pulling together and still doing it when things were so hard for everyone. 
my primary concern with all of this was making sure that the artists could succeed. So I spent the whole year working on that while I didn't have a whole lot of income coming in for myself. Um, I was blessed to play some music gigs online. The Rice Street Business Association was the umbrella uh, nonprofit that helped host the Nirmana Fest. And during that time, they also were putting on nightly music feeds through Zoom and on Facebook and such as that. And we were able to put out digital tip buckets. Those little things just, just kept a lot of people going. What has your income been like through this? We wonder how mural artists survive. Oh, wow with exposure. <laughs> it was meager. It was very meager, but it was enough. It was enough. And that's what, when I chose to focus on what was enough, then that was good. And that was okay. It was the hardest year that most people had been through in, in our lifetime or in mine financially for lots of reasons. And it was by far the most meaningful year of my life because of the success of this and then seeing 15 artists be able to express themselves and give something to community and all the people that came out. There's a great food truck called Rainbow Joe's. There was another shop called Aloha Aina. People would go and they'd pick up gift certificates and they would come and drop them off for these artists. Countless moments that are like that. The connectivity between the, the community and the artists and the local businesses and everybody just pulling together. <laughs> you got guess, something rolling here. <laughs> it's so what, wonderful. <laughs> and, and what does it look like for 2021 then? More, more of all of this. The, the response has been so wonderful that everybody just wants more. So now it's just a matter <laughs> of finding the funding and things like that and, and then planning for them and then bringing more young creative problem solvers to the table. So right now, actually going into 2021, we're definitely looking good to have a second Nirmana Fest in October again, as well as all of the schools here are totally into having more murals and things like that. We want to have a professional artist or two mentoring those kids and getting their ideas from them, really finding out what they've been going through and what their ideas are, what they want to contribute. <laughs> I'm hey, thanks so I'm much, Seth. Thank you. Let's stay in touch, okay? I'm not going anywhere. This is, uh, as I was blessed to travel a lot, my wife and I have been very happy to really just dive deep into the community here because there's just, there's just so much heart, so much heart here. Where would you say you're from, Seth? I don't know. I, I was born in North Carolina. I wasn't there very long. This has uh, been the longest I've lived and stayed in one spot. I actually had a really neat conversation with a wonderful Hawaiian lady the other day and talking about how that's something that I've never been able to identify with as having my roots from somewhere. My, my bloodline is Swedish, Norwegian, English, French, all over the place as well. And my core family lives all over the place internationally as well as all over the mainland. So there isn't anywhere that I can go back and say I'm going home. You know, that's, that's just not something that I've had. Many, many of us feel that way. And there's something else to contend with in the 21st century, right? That's right. Um, before Thank I do so go, I, I want to make sure that I remove myself from the center of any of this, because if it wasn't for really specifically, I absolutely want to thank uh, the Kauai Resilience Project, and that's the Kauai Planning and Action Alliance, the County of Kauai, the Mayor's Office, as well as Diana Singh. She was instrumental in helping us get permission, which was unprecedented in the 10 years that I've lived here. The floodgates opened this past year for these projects. Could be an effect of COVID. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something I saw that definitely was a positive that came out of a horrible circumstance. Shan Zuckerberg uh, Foundation was also a contributor, so I want to thank them. And Trice and Kanashige and the young artists that have all been stepping forward. Yelena, you did a great job. And uh, Bethany and all the other artists that participated in Nirmana. Super, I'm super proud, extremely proud. And I get goosebumps talking about it all the time. <laughs> Seth Womble, creative problem solver founder of Kauai's Near Manifest Mural Art Extravaganza. Another Kako thing set again for October 2021. <laughs> so much heart. I mean, sometimes it's like Kauai herself allows these things to happen. All the rain this week is good for your mokihana, good for your maile laoli'ili.
Lake's recording with her husband, Kahawanu Lake, and his trio. Auntie Mikey's composition about Kauai's fragrant loveliness. A note about Oahu's annual street mural festival, our own powwow. Founder Jasper Wong posted that due to uncontrollable variables, the event is canceled this year. Jasper has a show up right now in at virtual art space. Check it on Instagram. New work, a challenging sculpture, and prints that look great and make you think. You might want to get used to these virtual galleries, too. Closing soon, Jasper Wong is at virtual art space, and he says to expect a major announcement about powwow sometime soon. across an amazing opportunity the other day in Kaka'ako at Fish Cake Gallery. They're looking pretty fresh on Oahu, uh, Oahu Street over there. Fashion, coffee, and gifts that you, you know, you really want to keep. <laughs> Things that just kind of make life nicer. And I saw that owner, Mora Fujihira, has taken over some of the box jelly space next door and put in a small community ceramics lab. Ceramist Jun Funahashi happened to be there to pull it all together. I was in New York and then everything was locked down. I was going to go to Hunter College Ceramics Studio, but then it just got locked down. You know, for us, it's like cut out the arms, so we couldn't do anything. And then nothing going to happen, looks like nothing going to happen, so I came back because I love Hawaii. Then I met so many artists had the same problem. they just like, okay. I lost the motivation because we have no workplace and no kill access. And then Maula got donated this piece of this kiln. kiln. Yeah. And what kind of kiln is it? This is called Scott. <laughs> this is really, really good. Yeah, electric kiln. Uh -huh. And then they supported us over the online and then over the phone. And then so Maura and some electrician and professional people came <laughs> in and it hooked this up. And then now that it's up and running. And then I met so many artists have the same, same happiness that I have here now because they're like, oh my God, now we can create. So people can either yeah. come yeah. here and make things or they can yeah. just bring things to be fired? Yes. Both way, both way. Yes, yeah. yeah, some artists want to work at home. And also, the other day, some lady came and then I have to take care of uh, my brother, autism. And then she was like, okay, I'm holding up, but I'm so like, she has to stay at home, but she want to create something. She used to work in clay. So she bought the clay, and then now that she's creating at home something, and then still taking care of her brother too. So she was like very, very happy. I found something that I could do. Like, oh, I'll show you something like that. Look at this. This is like a decal kind of. Uh, she's a printmaker as well, like a local printmaker. And then she came up with this her own method to print it onto the ceramics. And then it could be earring. Oh, or, the yeah. amazing um, sort yeah. of exactitude of the design that's transferred. Yeah, so it's like a mixed medium. Like she has a background skill as a printmaker. And then now that she's put in love with the clay, so that she wants to combine two together. I love that mixed medium art. So this could be a really, really good opportunity for her to experiment. So this is still baby steps, but I want to support her to do like a workshop here. And then, yeah, so she can grow. How can people get in on this? <laughs> oh. Just call Fish Cake? Yeah. <laughs> oh, gee. June Funahashi's coordinating Blue Clay Studio, it's called, at Fish Cake. You can buy clay there and make it at home or rent studio space for you and a pal or two. We'll post a link with this story and close with a little more Kit Ebersbach.
guess that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for our time together. You know, we love to hear from you. You can call our talkback line, leave your comments there, anything you'd like to say. The number is 808-792-8217. Maybe you've got some suggestions. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or post um, your comments. We're there on Facebook, The Conversation HPR, or go ahead and tweet us too at HI Conversation. We've got a page there on the HPR website where you can go to listen back to our shows. So do that. I do. (laughs) This program is produced by Lillian Zong, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, Russell Subiono, and Savannah Harriman-Pote. Yep, this theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. The whole thing is a kako thing, and I'm Noe Tanigawa. Let's take care of each other, okay? 